0: Morning. Today's scripture is from Luke 24:36 through 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, "Peace to you." But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, "Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see." For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifted up his hands, he blessed them. When he blessed them, he parted from them, and was carried up into the heaven. And they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. The Gospel of the Lord.
1: Well, this morning, it's the end of this sermon series as we know it, and I feel fine. I swear I feel fine. I was able to find some notes uh, that I had prepared for the very first sermon in this series, Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, the introduction, which it said the file was last mod- modified in April of 2021, so I guess that's when this started, unless I, for some reason, modified the file later, but so about... Two and a half years ish with breaks, of course. And of course, this sermon series began when Pastor Mike was still here. So it's kind of strange and almost surreal to finally be finishing this series that Mike and I had started together. Um, Thinking back to that time, we were both very eager to start the series. A lot had happened in the months leading up to early 2021. I'm sure you can think of some. Things uh, we built this building. We changed our name. We were staring down Mike's uh, impending retirement, and we were, of course, in the midst of the pandemic and the confusion that came with that. In the midst of some other things uh, going on, just in the course of ministry. And so one day I was just sitting there in Mike's office, and he said he was thinking about a gospel, a series on the the Gospel of Luke, and I, I think I almost jumped out of my chair. That's exactly what I was going to suggest. We both sense this need for ourselves and for the church to take a big step back from all the complications and and chaos of, of life and ministry and take a fresh look at the person of Jesus Christ. Call it a gospel reset or a Jesus reset button to push, if you will. So we've taken that look now, a long look at Christ, his life and his times, his identity, his teaching, his miracles, his his character before God, his heart for sinners, his suffering, and his death, burial, and resurrection. We beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we have asked ourselves the question, who is Jesus, and how will we respond? Will we receive him or reject him? And now we find ourselves faced with another question. First question actually is could. Somebody get me maybe a decaf coffee out there. I need something to drink that's not... There's a little bit of drainage here. and That's not the question. That's just one that if I'm going to make it through the rest of the sermon series, I needed to ask. So thank you. Uh, uh, the question is, what's next for us besides coffee? What is, what is next for us? And I don't just mean what sermon series is going to be next. Obviously, it'll be an Advent series, right? But if Jesus is who he says he is... If Jesus is the Son of God in human form who died and rose again, and as Luke has has been encouraging us to do, we have confidence that this is true, then how do we live now? What What does this mean for us? What do we do with this information? Where does our esteem for Christ lead us? So we have renamed ourselves Christ First Church We affirm that everything is about Jesus, that he should be first in in everything, as Colossians says, in everything he might have preeminence. What does that look like? What difference does it make? What what happens next? I think that is actually a question that seems to me to be hanging over the disciples at the beginning of our passage this morning. Um, If we can get the passage up there, there we are. Um, That same line of questioning seems to be hanging over them. They are, Luke uh, 24-36, first clause here says, as they were talking about these things. In other words, the appearance of Jesus that we finally see here uh, in today's text happened during the same conversation that his disciples were having that was going on at the close of last week's text, which is convenient for me because I didn't actually finish the story last week. I don't know if anybody noticed that. Thank you so much. Uh, Proverbs 31 right there. Sorry. (laughs) Anyway, so I didn't finish last week's text. The story of the walk to Emmaus doesn't end, of course, with this miraculous revelation of Christ uh, to Cleopas and the other guy and the breaking of bread. But after their eyes are opened and they see Christ, they hurry back to Jerusalem to share with the eleven and the rest of the followers of Jesus who are still in Jerusalem to, to share what had happened. But before they get to tell their own story, those who are gathered there have their own update to give to them. It says the Lord is. "...has risen indeed and appeared to Simon." This refers to Simon Peter. It's interesting that Luke comes back to, to Peter because where we left him earlier, after the, the women had, had first heard this message from the angel that Christ has risen and, and gone and told uh, the disciples and they didn't believe him, but, but Peter ran to the tomb and found it empty and Luke says, just says that he went home marveling. So Luke leaves us kind of marveling or wondering about what would happen next in Peter's story, but he doesn't continue with Peter. He has this unexpected story about two disciples that we've never even heard of before. We don't really know who they are from anywhere else in in Scripture. So we find, though, that at some point here, as Luke picks up the story of Peter in a way, that Jesus did appear to Simon Peter alone. Uh, The Apostle Paul also mentions this in 1 Corinthians 15 as he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. He said he appeared to Cephas, which also means Peter, and then to the Twelve. So there's this appearance to to Peter before uh, he appears to the rest of them, which Luke uh, is, is perfectly harmonious, or Luke agrees here. So it's fascinating that Luke records the appearance to Cleopas, who's otherwise unknown to us, but the first interaction between Peter and Jesus on the first Easter Sunday, is completely between Peter and his Lord. And I find that's mysterious, but there's also something kind of comforting about that. That There's this moment that uh, is simply between Jesus and Peter, and all of Peter's life is not on display as an example to us. But at some point... Between Peter's sprint to the tomb that morning and the arrival of Cleopas later on, Jesus appeared to Peter, and Peter told the rest of the disciples about this. And as he did this, he seems to have strengthened his brothers, as Jesus had commanded him to do uh, when he first predicted that Peter would deny him. So Luke brings some resolution here to, to Peter's denial. Anyway, this conversation is going on. Uh, as Cleopas and his pal enter the scene, and of course they bring their own news, how Jesus appeared to them on the road and opened up the scriptures to them and made himself known as they broke bread. Now everyone seems to be convinced of the fact that Jesus has risen, but as we will see, as Luke continues, they still at this point have some doubt and some confusion. They're talking about these things and apparently still trying to sort it all out. They're not clear on what this means. And what comes next? So, a similar question to the one that that we're asking this morning. And as they are talking, as we see, Jesus himself appears before them. And the first thing he does is to demonstrate the nature of his resurrection. That it is a bodily resurrection. Uh, If you're taking notes, this is sort of the first point or first section here that Jesus demonstrates this is a bodily resurrection resurrection. So verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. And their reaction is kind of funny. They were startled and thought they saw a spirit. So, peace to you. Ah! What the Gehenna is that, right? The risen Lord appears to them and says, Peace to you. And they jump out of their skin. They think he's a ghost. So, sorry. Hope I didn't. (laughs) Hope I didn't... <laughs> That's, a bat. Yes, it's like they'd seen a bat, right? Yeah, okay. That's the old building. We're not talking about the bats anymore. Um, so it's just kind of funny. Their thinking is still confused. They had already said the Lord is risen indeed, but they don't seem to understand this is a bodily resurrection. Perhaps they think that he's moved on to some higher state of being or plane of existence or that they now exist as as pure spirit or something like that. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't think they knew what they were thinking either. I think that's part of the point. They are just confused. As Jesus says here in verse 38, they are troubled. Why are you troubled? That word can mean sort of a an emotional uh, troubling or a mental confusion. And honestly both of those seem to fit their reaction. Uh, They also have doubts arising in their hearts, which seem to be connected to the confusion about what's going on. Doubts and confusion certainly go hand in hand, and confidence doesn't require that we have all the answers to every question, but we at least need some answers, right, to have confidence. So Jesus, and I mentioned this last week, gives them some clarity using some empirical evidence, actually. See my hands and feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see For a spirit does not have uh, flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them uh, his hands and his feet. You know, kind of his reasoning here reminds me of Shakespeare's Macbeth. uh, When he's on his way to murder the king, he has this vision of a dagger floating there in front of him. And he tries to figure out if it's real what he's seeing by using his sense of touch. You know, is this a dagger I see before me? The handle toward my hand, come let me clutch thee, he says, Uh, and I have thee not, yet I still see thee still, so kind of concludes, is this coming from his his heat-oppressed brain as he calls it, a dagger of the mind, a false creation. How do I know I'm not just seeing things? If I can feel it as well as see it, I can have more confidence that it's really there and not just a hallucination. Uh, Jesus uses similar reasoning to to give his disciples confidence that he's not merely a spirit or an apparition, but that he has physically risen from the dead. Jesus is not a ghost. His body is genuinely alive again, clearly in a glorified state that somehow means he's able to appear and, and disappear in different places. But to confirm that he is bodily risen, he invites them to touch him And see, it's interesting that years later, toward the end of his life, the Apostle John will talk in his first letter about what our eyes have beheld, what our hands handled concerning the word of life. So he gives them the opportunity to be these eyewitnesses, and I guess hand witnesses as well, to his resurrection. Well, how do the disciples respond? Well, it says they they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. I mean how else would you respond at that point right um, this isn't one of the things they ever thought would happen or even could happen have you ever heard news so good that you said i can't believe it you just stand there stunned so they are standing there with their jaws on the floor and what does jesus say next got anything to eat around here And this is another example of of him demonstrating that he's bodily alive. So they give him some broiled fish, and then he took it and ate it. It reminds me of another work of classic uh, literature, uh, the Mel Brooks masterpiece, Dracula Dead and Loving It. Any mention of films that I make in my sermon series or teaching should not be interpreted as endorsement of those films as wholesome family entertainment. However there is a scene uh, where Leslie Nielsen's Dracula wakes up in his coffin, finds himself able to endure direct sunlight without bursting into flame as he normally would, and he concludes that he's cured of his vampire nature. He is no longer undead. He is alive, and so, of course, he goes to the park, shares a couple's picnic of wine and fried chicken, right, and tells his henchman excitedly, Renfield, look at me. I'm drinking wine and eating chicken, And so it turns out to be a dream, of course. Uh, He's having a daymare, as he said, but vampires vampires never drink wine or eat chicken. So within his dream, he sees this as evidence that he was cured. So why am I talking about this? Well, to balance out my Shakespeare reference earlier, I feel like I need to, to reference... Uh, this movie also. Well, never mind. I won't won't share any more thoughts about the movie, but uh, it's a similar argument Jesus is making. Ghosts don't get hungry. They don't eat broiled fish. Jesus is not undead. Jesus is alive. He makes it clear that he's not a simple spirit. uh, He is flesh and blood. So first big point to wrap our heads around is that Jesus rose bodily. We confessed this earlier in, in the creeds. Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, both say, I believe or I look for the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. Not simply a spiritual afterlife, but a flesh and bone restored and glorified life of the world to come. Jesus' body is the first piece of a whole new creation, a physical world where sin and death have no place. So the Christian hope, it's not merely that Christ gets us into the good part of the afterlife, but that Christ gives eternal life. That simple fact has many implications. If we had plenty of time, we could talk about many of them. But the the physical world, the big one is the physical world is good and meaningful. The body is not a a prison for the soul or a distraction uh, from holiness, but it is part of who we are. Paul tells us that the body is a temple of the holy spirit who dwells within us. So to tie this into our main question of of what's next or how do we put Christ first? To put Christ first is not to a- abandon Uh, physical embodied existence for or or pursue some kind of life of of pure contemplation or spiritual meditation it doesn't mean we seek transcendent out-of-body experiences and it's not even merely an intellectual pursuit although we obviously should think about things we're doing that now but physical existence is not in and of itself a distraction from putting Christ first our bodies our possessions are the tools that we have to use to put Christ first in our lives, our our physical lives. What exactly does that look like? That is a big question. Um, It might mean something like working to care for both spiritual and physical needs. As we'll see in our next point, the the main uh, calling that we have is to make Christ known, to proclaim Christ, but we also do show his love to others might also mean something like, you know, preparing and eating a feast is a good way of thanking God for the gifts that he has given. But the main point, uh, just to think about, is that holiness involves all of life, including our physical existence, certainly has implications for how we live, as Paul says, glorify God in our bodies. Moving on here then, Jesus has demonstrated his bodily resurrection that has implications for us today, but their deeper need, as I said last week, if they're to make sense of this resurrection and figure out what to do next, is to understand the word of God. It's ultimately the word of God that has the transforming power. Jesus says this, and he actually says it's basically review for them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything written about me in the law and the prophets and Moses, and Psalms, the law of Moses rather, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Kind of a side note here: uh, the Jews at this time divided the Hebrew Bible into three parts called the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. The law is the law of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Then there are the prophets, which basically included what we might normally call the prophetic books. They, they kind of These categories don't entirely line up uh, with, with our divisions. But then the third section was simply called the writings, which included most notably the Psalms and Proverbs, as well as Job and some others. The point is that when Jesus says the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms, it comes pretty close to referring to that three-part system of Law, Prophets, and Writings, what we might call today the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So Luke is driving home some points that he's been making all along in this chapter, which we've seen before, that all the Scriptures testify to Christ, that the cross was part of God's plan back from the very beginning, not any kind of setback. And the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, that's not a plan B after the Jews rejected Jesus. It was exactly what God had planned to do from the beginning. And on top of that, Luke once again makes the point that we need God's help to understand this. We need God's help to see the truth that's in his word, Luke says next that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Again, I said last week, our problem is a spiritual problem. It requires a supernatural solution. We need God to open our minds to understand the scriptures. Not because there's anything wrong with the scriptures, but because of what's wrong with us. We're foolish, we're slow of heart to believe what is written, as he said to the disciples. In Paul's language from Romans, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And yet, in an interesting twist, the very scriptures they doubted become the tool God used to open their eyes to the truth, to show them that these things are fulfilled in Christ. As Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, it's when we come to Christ that the veil is removed and we're able to see scriptures. So the Holy Spirit stoked the fires of faith in their cold hearts by means of the scriptures. Just thinking about this, some folks uh, occasionally might accuse us of something like uh, they they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures, the implication being we worship the Bible instead of God the Spirit, but they might as well accuse us of worshiping the cross instead of worshiping Christ. We honor Jesus by receiving his work for us on the cross. Christ is important to you. The cross is important to you. We honor the Spirit by receiving his work through us in his word. If you want to honor the Spirit, then the word must be important to us. Well, this is all very well, but it's kind of review for us and for the disciples. These are points that are worth repeating because Luke has repeated them. But here in this final section, he adds a few more details about what the scriptures say beyond the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which speak to our question today of of now what? He says here, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Also part of the message of those same scriptures he tells them you are witnesses of these things and behold i am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high there are so many little details in this passage that are fascinating that are worthy of our attention and reflection i'd love to talk about what does repentance and forgiveness mean in luke there's a nerdy discussion to be had about the way he uses repentance. It's more than just stop sinning, like we might think of it, but it's our whole response to the gospel and inward transformation. I'd love to talk about why Jesus says beginning from Jerusalem because there's a wonderful picture of God's mercy and grace that think about Jesus riding into Jerusalem and all his uh, prophecies of how they're going to reject him and the destruction that is to come. But it's in Jerusalem that Jesus says, This message of repentance and forgiveness is first proclaimed to the very people who called for his death from the very beginning. And the way that the gospel goes out, God is making it clear that grace is not for those who deserve it, but for those who stand in need of it. So Luke packs a lot into the closing verses of his gospel account, but his main point here is this. The same scriptures that spoke of the work Jesus did for For us, also speak of the work Jesus will do through us. So here is the message of Scripture Jesus died and rose again so that we might turn to Him and receive forgiveness of our sins. And then we are to take this same message of Scripture, the same message of forgiveness, and proclaim it to all nations, to all peoples. The word there is ethnos, it's where we get the term ethnicity. It doesn't necessarily mean states in the sense of geopolitical entities, but groups of people as God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis, through you all families of the earth will be blessed. So this is God's work. This is God's plan revealed in God's word to restore for himself a people in Christ Jesus, to ransom a people from every tribe and language and people and nation and make them a kingdom and priests to God, as the book of Revelation says. So Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And what do we do with that information? We share it. We proclaim it. We go and tell the world, go and make disciples. But notice that this is still God's work. Verse 49, Jesus says, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay until you're clothed with power from on high. The promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit, who will empower Jesus' followers to be his witnesses. You see all three persons of the Trinity there. Jesus is sending the promise, Spirit of the Father. So, God the Holy Spirit is the promise of God the Father who is sent by God the Son. This is still the work of Jesus Christ, still the work of the whole Trinity, really. God in three persons. It's not as if Jesus has done his part. God has done his part in, in redeeming us, and now he just pushes it onto our side, uh, balls in our court. It's in our hands now, our power to do our part. What will we do with it? No, Jesus has promised that his own mission, God's own mission, will continue through them by the power of the Spirit. This is the significance also of the ascension of Christ, which Luke just very briefly summarizes in verses 50 and 51. He'll give us more details about that event in the book of Acts, but at some point later on he led them out and While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. The point to the ascension is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And that language that we recite in the creeds actually comes from Scripture. It comes from Psalm 110, verse 1, which is the most frequently cited Old Testament verse in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the idea here, it's not that Jesus just Flew away to leave us to our own devices. He ascended to take his place at the right hand of God, the seat of all authority over all creation. Do you remember how uh, the famous verse, verses we call the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel actually begins? It doesn't begin with "Go and make disciples." It begins with Jesus saying, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go." And make disciples. The message here is not just that we have work to do now, but that our work is and its outcome are securely in the hand of Christ, who has sent the Spirit to empower us to carry out that calling. That is what we will see. Actually, I say we will see as if we're going to go on and do the Book of Acts, um, but that's what we do see in Luke's sequel, the Book of Acts. The followers he's talking to today in this text will be his witnesses, as he says here. But Luke makes it clear from beginning to end that it's really the Holy Spirit who is at work through them. These doubting and often kind of dopey disciples that we've come to know and love in the book of Luke will become uh, the men who turn the world upside down in the book of Acts, because the Holy Spirit is at work through them, declaring the things of Christ to them and through them, to borrow language from John's gospel. So what does that all mean for us? As we think about this, what is next for us? Well, the same basic two points. Uh, like the first disciples, we have work we are called to do. The heart of that work is to make Christ known. To proclaim the Christ of Scripture in all of Scripture to all the world. The way Jesus says this, by the way, that uh, repentance and forgiveness will be proclaimed in His name to all nations, I think makes it clear that this work is for the church as a whole. No one individual can possibly proclaim Christ to all nations. If you think you don't need to be a part of a church, I'd like to see how you are going to carry out that command to proclaim Christ to all nations without partnering with other believers in some way, shape, or form. This is a work that we have to do together. We are called to do together. It takes a church. But as many of you may have experienced at some point in your life, when we come together as a church, it is both beautiful and complicated, right? Remember uh, the, the classical musician and uh, comedian Victor Borger once talking about an orchestra in front of him. Each, each an individual musician here is, is, is an artist in his or her own right. It's only when we come together that we begin to have a little difficulty. Uh, maybe church seems uh, similar at some times. When we come together, we, we begin to have difficulties. You know, there's opportunity for fellowship and conflict. Group projects are tough but church is necessary for carrying out the work God has called us to do, and the church is also the fruit of that work. God is working not just to redeem a bunch of saved individuals, but a a holy people that he's building together. So my plan after Advent is to do a series on the church. Uh, My working title is How to Church. I haven't got it all mapped out yet. I'd like to dig into the scriptures and try to sharpen my understanding and yours about what the church is, about what our mission and purpose is, and what the Word of God says about some of the obstacles and challenges that we face uh, within and without. Uh, there are complications that arise, as we said, when we come together to try to proclaim Christ, but I don't believe any of them are new. If you just look at 1 Corinthians, they faced some huge internal issues, and the Bible gives us some, some guidance, I believe, for... For working through some of those things, but for today, though, uh, the big takeaway—this is the second point uh, here—is this: that God is not done. The story is not over. Now that we're finished with the book of Luke, Jesus has not left us. He has not forsaken us. The promise of God is still upon us. The promised Holy Spirit is here. Right now, with us and within us, as Martin Luther wrote, the word of God, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. This is why God is a mighty fortress. His plan, his purpose, his mission Will not fail. His kingdom is forever. So the mission is not up to our power, our ability, because it's not, in the first place, our work. It never was. It has always been the mission of God. Since Genesis chapter 3, when he promised the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, since he promised to Abraham that all families of the earth. Would be blessed through him, and he promised to David that he would have a son who would reign forever, great David's greater son. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at your right hand, sit at my right hand. And since he promised through Isaiah, a suffering servant who would bear our sorrows, carry our iniquities, this is God's work, God's plan for us and through us from beginning to end. The work of the church is God's own work, and he is the one who who will carry it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for these glorious truths that you have shown us that you had this plan from the very beginning to redeem us, that you loved us long before we ever knew you. God so loved the world and that as followers of Jesus Christ, we can know that your relationship with us in a strange way Existed long before we did. Your love for us and your grace and mercy and compassion for us. As we reflect on this whole series uh, that we've been through on the book of Luke and everything that you have shown us, we are in awe of Christ, his authority. And his mercy, his love and his grace, his character, his integrity, and his mission, which is your work given to him to redeem us. We have so great a Savior who is not only such a wonderful example for us of of how to live and what we should be doing and what our priorities and attitudes should be. But more than that, our substitute, the one who perfectly fulfilled your law, the one who is the true and greater Israel, the foundation of the people of God, who bore your wrath in our place and fulfilled the law in our place so that we are now able to stand here justified our sins forgiven not because of our own righteousness not because of the the strength or quality of our own de- devotion or or even the power of our own faith but entirely because of what Christ Jesus our lord did for us, that our righteousness is Jesus' life and our debt was paid by his death. We thank you that we do have a risen Savior. And we thank you that through your word we can have confidence of this. Uh, we pray that your word that we have heard all along would be at work in us, in our hearts, and in our minds, as it was in those first disciples. Strengthen us to believe, open our hearts to see Christ in your word, that we might then have the confidence to go and to tell, to proclaim Christ As you have called us to do, knowing the truth of the gospel and knowing the power of the gospel, that we could have confidence that Christ is risen, indeed, truly risen. And this changes everything, that our debts are paid, our sins erased, and we can stand before you we can come boldly to the throne of grace and also that this message of salvation in christ jesus is powerful is living and active that the gospel is not something for us to be ashamed of both because it's true and because it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes lord Thinking of closing this sermon series and where we began, and I can't help but reflect on uh, your faithfulness over the the course of the life of this church and the ministry of Pastor Mike, with whom I started this series, and um, how you worked through your word through Pastor Mike to lead this church to, to be who we are today and the, not simply the superficial name change but what it represents, this desire that we have to put Christ first in everything. I pray uh, I give you thanks uh, for, for that work and for what you have done and we also know that that story is not over as well, and so I know that there are many conversations to be had about how we will carry out our mission, what it looks like for us to proclaim Christ to those around us. Thank you that we can have that, this confidence, though, that it is ultimately not something that depends on our power, This this is your work, that you have sent your Spirit to us, that Christ still sends this promise of our Father that still rests upon us. The Spirit and the gifts are still ours through Christ who is on our side. And so we pray that the power of the gospel would continue to transform us and through us transform the lives of those around us to the glory of God the Father. Pray these things in Christ Jesus' name.